Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He is also a fellow at both the Center for a New American Security and the Center for Strategic and International Studies. He is part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military and unmanned systems. Uh, Sam, thanks so very much for joining us and I hope you and yours had a great Thanksgiving and a great Thanksgiving weekend. Thanks so much, Raga. I hope yours was great as well. I had a terrific one and wish the same for all of our uh, audience. Before we get started, a quick word from our sponsor. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII delivering the advantage. Uh, Sam uh, was, was a busy week. Uh, last week, uh, we, know we discussed Ukraine's attack uh, on uh, Moscow. Over the weekend, Russians struck back and the Ukrainians counterstruck. Walk us through what happened and what it means as this conflict on the ground sort of stalemates uh, because of the weather, but the long-range strike war will be continuing. Last week, Russia launched what is probably the largest drone attack against Kiev and Ukraine in general. It launched something like 75 Garan-2 loading munitions. Uh, most of them were shot down, according to the Ukrainian sources. They did target Ukrainian energy infrastructure and stationary targets. What this attack basically exemplified is that uh, Russians are ramping up their production numbers of the Garan-2 drone. They're leaning on this drone as the go-to source and a go-to weapon, basically, for long-range strikes. After all, uh, the Iranian-provided Shahed and the Russian Garan version can fly probably up to 1,000 kilometers, meaning they can strike all over Ukraine. And this particular strike was, again, directed at the mostly civilian targets to try and put a lot of stress on the Ukrainian civilian population, civilian authorities as the country heads into the winter. The following day, almost the following day, Ukraine struck back and launched uh, multiple drones against Moscow, against Tula region, Kaluga region, and Smolensk and Bransk regions, which are close to the Ukrainian border. Uh, there were light, essentially there was light damage. Um, Russian authorities said that no one was hurt, but some damage was recorded. Again, Ukrainians have demonstrated that they can strike the western part of Russia, which has the bulk of the population, the bulk of the industry, and the bulk of the infrastructure. Of, uh, of note is the fact that Ukraine may have used its equivalent of the Iranian Shahed drone, something that the Ukrainian military was teasing for a couple of weeks and announced uh, probably about two weeks ago. Uh, this drone probably looks like Shahed and has a range of up to 1,000 kilometers. So both countries now have the capacity to, to launch long-range strikes against each other with drones. And the real question is, who is going to mass scale this production? Because both the Russian and the Ukrainian commentators are saying that the winner in this war when it comes to drone warfare will be the side that will really mass scale all of the drone production and put a lot of industrial might behind that. As well as partners like Turkey uh, are also helping Moscow, uh, as we saw in a great article in the in the Financial Times. How is all of this improving Russian capabilities as the Russian economy itself goes on a full war footing? 
Well, when it comes to the development of drones, the Russian Geraint 2 version, which is an improved version of the Iranian-provided Shahed uh, from last year, uh, has a, um, a different um, a carbon covering as a sort of a radioabsorbent uh, radio material, so it's a little less uh, susceptible to electronic warfare and radio electronics reconnaissance. It, it, was it was colored in black to make it less visible during the night sky. Russians have improved uh, engines in the Geraint 2, so it's a little quieter. They've switched the uh, reliance on satellite comms to GLONASS uh, instead of GPS. So Russia is making improvements, and uh, one of the major improvements is the fact that the warhead in the Geraint 2 is larger than in the original Shahed. So Russia gets a lot of military assistance, as you have just indicated, from countries like Iran and North Korea, but Russia also gets a lot of other assistance through its legitimate and illegitimate trade uh, with countries that it usually trades with, like China, like India, like Iran, and of course, like Turkey. Uh, the Financial Times article you're referring to talks about um, Turkey as an intermediary for shipping a lot of uh, components that uh, aid in the Russian war machine, especially microelectronics and different types of microprocessors. I think Turkey's position is very unique in this war in general. And uh, we can talk for hours about that. After all, Turkey is supplying Ukraine with military drones, fight against Russians. But Turkey is also a very important physical conduit for all kinds of goods and services that flow into Russia via Turkey through other uh, countries like uh, Central Asian states and the Caucasus. So the goods originate in or pass through Turkey to the Caucasus to Central Asia, and from there they pass to Russia. This indicates the challenges facing sanctions enforcement after all as long as russia maintains open trade with lots of countries around the world this is something that we've been talking about for weeks and months as long as that trade continues it is difficult to enforce these sanctions because a lot of these products especially microelectronics are dual use and oftentimes they originate as civilian products that could then be put in or modified for military purposes uh, indeed, it's very, very complicated in terms of the flow of everything from civilian computers to uh, consumer appliances, as our uh, as our audience uh, knows. Uh, let me. I, I want to go to uh, Vladimir Putin's remarks at uh, the annual AI Journey conference in in just a moment. But I just want to follow up um, in in terms of how are the Ukrainians doing at defending themselves, uh, and how are the Russians doing at penetrating those. Uh, defenses, right? Um, Ukraine has been able to keep the lights on, has, you know, has managed to shoot down or electronically defeat uh, some of these attacks. But, right, the advantage in many respects is with the attacker here, especially an attacker who's deepening and, and enlarging their magazine every day. How How is this cat and mouse game playing out um, as, as, as the Russians, right? I mean, they're putting into service a whole new generation of uh, jamming equipment as well, right? It's not just the old-fashioned high-power stuff. It's high-power and a lot better than what, what they were using a year ago. Right. It's a constant learning process. Every attack on the Ukrainian uh, targets essentially gets reviewed by the Ukrainian military. They learn from it. Russians learn from the Ukrainian tactics. And so it's a constant change every time a successful attack takes place. Countermeasures are put in place. And then these kind of measures get analyzed by the attackers and so on and goes. Every uh, drone attack against Ukrainian targets essentially stresses Ukrainian air defenses. And that's the whole point. That's why Russia just launches these drones from multiple directions at the largest city in the country. 
it's not just a single weapon that's effective. It's a combination of weapons because the drones have to be sighted, they have to be identified, they have to be tracked, and then they are shut down. And so Ukrainians are using uh, a large number of uh, heavy machine guns, a uh, large number of tracked um, anti-aircraft weapons like the Gepard. We're seeing more and more evidence and images of technicals, essentially uh, truck-mounted heavy machine guns, uh, for the Ukrainian side uh, that go after Gerains. We're using, uh, excuse me, we're seeing Ukrainians use uh, all manner of other uh, tactics like uh, the projectors during the night to uh, illuminate the attacking drones. But again, it's a combination of factors. And so it's constant training and retraining. It's the constant review of every attack and uh, essentially attempts at uh, trying to uh, uh, modify the defenses or strengthen the defenses. And of course, Russians are learning from every attack, but they're also learning from the Ukrainian counterattacks as well. It seems that Russian air defenses and electronic warfare defenses are in fact functioning because if in fact most of the Ukrainian drones that attacked Russia over the weekend were shut down, then Russians can say that their defenses are successful. But the fact that the Ukrainians were able to penetrate Russian airspace so far and so deep all the way to Moscow is also indicative of the fact that Ukrainians are learning as well. And of course, we... Um, we always talk about the value of civilian versus military targets. Um, uh, obviously, uh, going after civilian targets puts a lot of stress on the Russian population, but the Russian society seems to be resigned to the conflict. And these attacks, although they make headlines, they have limited scope and limited impact. If Ukraine starts going after Russian military targets, Russian military bases, industrial facilities, Russian industrial and military infrastructure, I think the impact would be quite different. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see what's uh, next on that as the Ukrainian uh, special services, right, have proved pretty adept at wreaking some havoc uh, wherever they go. It's interesting that those facilities have not yet uh, been uh, targeted. Talk to us a little bit about what Vladimir Putin had to say uh, at the AI Journey conference. Well, this is an annual event that's organized by the Russian government. Uh, it's organized to demonstrate Russian successes in or progress in implementing and developing artificial intelligence. The event is headlined by Russia's biggest bank and Russia's biggest high-tech enterprise, Zbear. Uh, used to be Zbear Bank, but now it's just Zbear, kind of like Google is, is something else now. And Zbear offers a number of um, services that go beyond uh, just the finances. And so the head of Zbear, um, German Gref, is uh, one of the biggest uh, promoters of uh, Russian artificial intelligence and uh, usually headlines this event. President Putin speaks usually after about half an hour talking about where Russia stands with respect to AI and uh, where Russia stands with respect to global AI developments. This year, he was actually saying that the, and I quote, monopolistic dominance of Western developed technological systems in Russia is unacceptable and even dangerous. He basically called for Russian domestic development to be sped up, to um, have this domestic development supported by a number of incentives. Uh, but this also indicates that despite all of the, um, all the domestic achievements and uh, all the successes in Russian financial sector or uh, in, uh, in medicine, when it comes to applying different AI uh, technologies, it is still Western technologies developed in the United States and uh, in, in Europe that actually dominate and are used widely. And that's why Putin wants the domestic enterprises, domestic efforts to really be scaled up so that, in his own words, Russia can compete on an equal basis with um, with the best of the um, 
of the essentially of the AI world. This comment was directed at the United States, uh, and Vladimir Putin also said that a lot of AI searches or AI prompts are actually in the English language; they're not in the Russian language. And so he was concerned that because most people around the world are using English language to work with and deal with AI. Uh, people aren't necessarily going to be introduced to the Russian culture and Russian society because um, a lot of results are generated based on sort of what the Western developers were working on. So all of this sort of uh, the incentives for domestic enterprises, concern about Western dominance and AI technologies in general, all adds up to sort of Russian president essentially supporting and facilitating the uh the programs and efforts put in place after the invasion of Ukraine aimed at import substitution and uh, the rise of Russia basically as a high-tech uh, power on the par with other global powers on its own, which is very difficult to do, uh, considering that we just talked about how Russia relies on microelectronics and, and other components to fuel its uh, high-tech and military industries. And Russian civilian high-tech industry is obviously part of that process. It also depends a lot on um, some of the imported solutions still, both for hardware and software. And that's why Russian president was very concerned about that and called for the domestic development to step up, uh, prompted by uh, Russian government and supported with different types of incentives. I will add that most of the benefits from these programs are probably going to be uh, essentially acquired by larger state-affiliated and state-sponsored enterprises and companies. Uh, Russia does have a lot of, uh, uh, it does have a lot of high-tech startups, very nimble companies, but it's unclear if they will be treated the same way that they're usually treated in the West. And so oftentimes these uh, nimble startups that can upset the status quo uh, get shoved aside in favor of uh, sort of this state-affiliated large-scale effort from the likes of Zbear and uh, a number of other state enterprises. Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily coverage. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, hope you guys had a terrific Thanksgiving and welcome back to the program. We did. And it's always great to be here, Margo. Uh, absolute uh, pleasure. And I'm one of the people who loves turkey, so I have nothing to, <laughs> I have nothing, nothing to complain about. Um Another one of your terrific notes, uh, Byron, where you uh, assess uh, the new speaker and um, uh, Mike Johnson and his cri the critical role uh, that obviously he's playing. Uh, he struck a bipartisan deal to keep the government open until uh, the end of January, depending on what part of government you're talking about. Uh, and you note that there are actually six essential questions that everybody in this ecosystem, uh, whether they're in management, whether they're uh, investors uh, or anybody else, uh, need to be asking themselves. Um, walk us through your budget case and, and the six critical questions uh, that folks ought to be asking themselves. Sure, Vago. Well, I think, you know, the first and most obvious one is, you know, will he stick with or is he going to stick it to the members of the Freedom Caucus, you know, who kind of begrudgingly have gone along with these continue the continuing resolutions that he crafted successfully? 
Um, you know, but there's still the fundamental issues about um, the views on a strong desire to cut non-defense discretionary spending the levels below FY23. Uh, you know, the fact that Speaker Johnson had visited Mar-a-Lago and came out um, supporting President Trump or, or Trump, our prior president. Um, and I think so this is going to be really important as we get into these, you know, the next phase in the appropriations process, you know, will he agree um, to the path that, that the Freedom Caucus wants to see? Or, you know, is he going to cave again and try and craft um, a bipartisan agreement that, that sees these appropriation deals through? And, and for now, I think I have to believe, you know, if you leave, look at things like the Heritage Action for America Scorecard, um, he's actually further to the right um, than Speaker McCarthy. So I think, you know, as much as um, Speaker Johnson is going to be supportive of defense, you've got this fundamental tension between defense and non-defense discretionary spending. At the end of the day, you really have to ask from a party standpoint and from his leadership standpoint, what's going to be more important? And, and I think that's that's not crystal clear to me how that's going to break. And what's the second question? Well, the second question is, you know, is he going to stick with this promise that there won't be any further short-term CRs? Um, he made some statements that were picked up by the media um, on November 15th that he wouldn't consider additional continuing resolutions after the current ones expire. You know, that that maybe there's a shutdown, but the next thing would be like, look, if you're not going to get appropriations bills, we're just going to go to a full year CR, which kind of gets to that. Fiscal Responsibility Act of 2023, um, you know, then then you get into the automatic cut scenarios to be determined, you know, can can he get that um, through the House uh, with what might be an even slimmer majority, right. depending on what happens to Representative Santos. And uh, that takes you uh, to the third question, right? What's uh, the deal that should be reached on border security, which is yeah. going to be essential to uh, you know, greasing this through the process, right? Yeah, and that's probably really more, that really pertains more to the $106 billion supplemental request the administration has sent over. Majority Leader Schumer has said he wanted to try and move this, you know, as soon as possible. Um, but, you know, you've seen Republican demands, most notably in a November 6th kind of letter that was sent around, you know, that you've got to do something about border security and, you know, they're still looking for something along the similar lines of H.R. 2 that the House had passed uh, with really no Democratic support. Um, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think there is a realization, particularly um, among some Democrats, that you got to start doing something about border security and change it. Uh, look at the fiscal pressures that New York City, for example, is, is experiencing. But, you know, what's the line uh, <laughs> where you can find a deal? Because I think if you can't find that deal, you aren't going to find um, room on the supplemental. And that then could cascade into expectations for FY24 um, regular appropriations. Uh, and then uh, you've got three other questions, right? What are they? Yeah, two. Yeah, basically three. Um, the, the next would be, you know, could you see once these cuts really start to materialize and people, you know, kind of take a deeper look, particularly the non-defense discretionary cuts, will that matter <clears throat> for re-election prospects uh, going into November? Um, that's probably kind of more of a spring-summer phenomena, but I think 
Um, you know, I think the Democrats could run very strongly, or Democratic Party could run uh, very hard on some of these cuts and what they really mean uh, to people's day-to-day -day lives. Um, so that's going to be a factor to watch. Uh, the Another factor is obviously if there's another security event <clears throat> that, um, that raises questions about, you know, can you really cut defense in this kind of environment? The Taiwanese election in January is going to be important to watch, um, particularly if uh, the the ruling party in Taiwan is sustained and looks, you know, for closer ties for the United States. Uh, China could certainly uh, voice um, some views on that and maybe even take some actions on it uh, that that could prompt uh, again, you know, some second thoughts. Is this the environment you want to be cutting defense in? And I suppose the last thing, Vago, you know, would Congress be willing to change? The Fiscal Responsibility Act. <clears throat> we saw that with the Budget Control Act, you know, where, you know, they found ways to sidestep maybe some of the worst case outcome for sequester. That again is going to be something that probably has to, you know, fit that into March or April before the April 30th deadline when these automatic sequester cuts get, get in place. Again, um, hard for me to thread that needle right now, but it, it's still it's still one marker on this path to what the ultimate outcome is for FY24. What are some of the other things that you're tracking, uh, Byron, in this um, morass? Uh, you know what I mean? I mean, it's very, very hard to divine the answers to any of these uh, questions, right? I mean, logic would dictate that it should be relatively straightforward and simple. Uh, but we're finding that just about everything is, is not, and it has real-world implications. I mean, if you're Vladimir Putin you're, or China, you're buoyed uh, by all of this, right? Your partners, as we heard from Sam earlier in the program, you know, the North Koreans are helping you out. The Iranians are helping you out. The Turks, a NATO, you know, NATO ally who's playing both sides of this uh, is involved, being a conduit uh, uh, for technology to the to the Russians. I mean, ultimately, what, what are you tracking Biggest thing that I'm concerned about, Vago, is you have this focus on discretionary spending, um, and particularly for the Republicans, non-defense discretionary spending. And A, I, I hate that division because I think so much of non-defense discretionary actually supports national security. If you look at things like the CHIPS Act, if you look at, at labor training, if you look at you know, even child care and support to try and get more people back in the workforce, you know, this is all interlinked into building national capacity and resilience. So, you know, saying, well, we're, we're just going to cut non-defense discretionary spending and think that that doesn't have any ramifications for national security is, is wildly silly in my view. Um, silly is probably too light a word to use in that context. Um, there are two other points that I think are missing from this debate. One is the obvious one that the problem you have with the U.S. fiscal picture is not discretionary spending, it's mandatory spending. And as long as that issue is kept off the table, as well as any discussion about revenues, you know, these cuts in the grand scheme of things really don't make much of a difference to the, the fiscal trajectory of the United States. The other thing um, that I really, you know, kind of gnaws on me is there's very little discussion about what the appropriate level of debt the U.S. could manage and hold. I mean, there are a couple of think tanks in Washington, D.C. Their, their professional standing is, you know, debt has to come down, but they've never been able to answer the question of, well, how much debt can the U.S. sustain as a country? And I think 
if you could answer that question, you could really have a more fulsome discussion about, look, <clears throat> here's what we can do. Here, here's here's what's sustainable in this kind of environment. And oh, by the way, you know, when you look at these surges in discretionary spending that have happened, they tend to happen during things like financial crises, pandemics, you know, the 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 known unknowns uh, that are going to be inevitable and they're not captured in right. some of these forecasts. And you would hope that like any company or enterprise or even a household, you know, you kind of know what you how much debt you can bear, but you could always borrow when an emergency arises. But, you you know, you don't want to be operating right at the limit and and not be able to borrow when you really need to. But again, that the, so those are the two things you know, from a philosophical standpoint, that I think um, I'd feel a lot better about this discussion about U.S. defense spending and um, and discretionary spending if you kind of answered those two those two factors, or at least had a, a more open discussion about it, which I don't see today. Uh, in, in, indeed, we've got about a minute left. Uh, tell the audience what they should be paying attention to over the course of the coming week. And then let's take about 30 seconds to get your sense uh, on what you're expecting uh, to hear out of the Reagan National Defense Forum. Sure. Um, there's a major simulation trade show taking place in Orlando. Uh, the I, it's ITSEC. Yeah, ITSEC right. 23. Um, so, you know, maybe some news that's relevant to contractors and the, the products that they're showing. Um, Hudson Institute is doing something on U.S. and Ukraine security with two members of Congress. Atlanta Council also has an event with um, with uh, Representative Turner, uh, Republican from Ohio, on the 29th on Ukraine. Um, there's a Chatham House uh, ISPKKAS event that's actually started today on Monday on Europe's strategic choices in Berlin. And Rolls-Royce is holding their Capital Markets Day on November 28th. Uh, so there'll be some news flow out of that that will, you know, people are going to focus mainly on the commercial aero engine part of their portfolio, but obviously they're they're a pretty significant player in defense. And it'll be interesting what they talk about defense. What to expect from Reagan? Well, look, I think the big issue is going to be, you know, how loud a gong uh, do people bang on this issue about what's going to happen if the DOD budget is sequestered in 2024? You know, what's the importance of, of getting that done? Why the Ukraine supplemental, um, the aid for Israel, the submarine industrial base money, all the other stuff that's in that $106 billion portfolio, wh what, what does it mean if you don't pass that? Um, and then I think, you know, obviously something on the new uh, defense industrial policy, um, that'll probably get discussed. I don't know if it's going to get fully rolled out there, but there's going to be some discussion on it. And, um, you know, just the broader comments and discussions that will come up on supply networks, cooperation with allies. Um, I'm sure there are going to be some sidebars on AUKUS. So that all takes place on Saturday. I'm not going to be going this year, um, but I will be listening to the uh, the, the the webinar, the webcast that, that come from that conference in Simi Valley. And look forward to your after action. We're going to be there uh, and we're very much looking forward uh, to uh, covering it and to our audience. A quick word uh, that 
that uh, our team is going to be at ITSEC, uh, and we are going to get a report for the, from the sidelines for our technology report on uh, Wednesday. Byron, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure. Uh, hope you guys managed to get through all the turkey. Have a great week and look forward to having you back on again next week. Would love to get your take uh, on uh, the takeaways uh, from Reagan. And uh, we hope that Dr. Dove Zakheim is going to be joining us as well uh, for, for some of his takeaways from the discussions then. So we'll have a little bit of a roundtable next Monday. Very good, Vago. Safe travels. And thanks very much for joining us today. And a special thanks to HII uh, for their generous sponsorship that makes today's program possible. Uh, tune in again tomorrow for our conversation with Ilan Berman uh, on Russian disinformation. Thanks very much. Have a great day and we'll see you then.